Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. of the GradCast here at Western U. My name is Eric Green, my co-host Alex Mozinski, and today we're sitting here with Samantha Desrochers talking about her research to do with World War I and Christmas. So I guess first of all, Sam, can you just tell us what your uh, project is about? Yeah, so my project is a social memory project. It's sort of looking at um, how the Christmas truce is sort of constructed in our memory and what it was really like at the time. So. Um, right now, we build it up. You know, Christmas truce of World War One was this sort of moment um, that we can look back on, where humanity trumped violence. You know, like the message of peace and goodwill to all really rang true. And actually, when we look back at sort of like the home front experience of World War One, we can see that that wasn't really what was going on or what was being projected to the people back home. It was much smaller than that. So I sort of tried to look at that angle of the Christmas truce. Okay, so like the way we remember it now is a lot more inflated than it was at the time. Definitely, yeah. Okay, interesting. What uh, interested you in this topic? Well, actually, so I'm I'm working on my PhD um, in my first year of the program, but my uh, dissertation in the future is going to look at Christmas um, during World War II and look at sort of a comparative project between America, Britain, and Canada and sort of like the cultural exchange. Um, but my supervisor suggested, you know, people are going to ask you when you defend what was Christmas in World War One like. So uh, that's sort of where this project sort of originated and it turned into this. Cool. So like a stepping stone. Yeah. To the final thing, right on. So what kind of sources have you been looking at for your information? Well, um, I base my uh, sort of project around Toronto, not because it's sort of representative of Canada, because it really wasn't, um, but more so because it's sort of the cultural center of Anglophone Canada. So predominantly I looked at newspapers to see what um, what was being sort of like sold to the people, per se. Um, like, are they really talking about the, the Christmas truce on December 25th, 26th, or are they, you know, talking about other things? And in turn I sort of looked at, well, what was Christmas about then? So I looked at advertisements and um, editorials and things like that. Okay, so um, just so that everybody who is a history student can kind of grasp this, can you just maybe tell us the traditional narrative that we hear these days about the Christmas truce? Right, so I think the traditional narrative would be something like, um, you know, December 24th, the evening or the morning of Christmas Day, um, soldiers sort of laid down their arms in this moment of um, common humanity and sort of decided that, uh, you know, the Christmas spirit was bigger than the war and they could sort of go across no man's land and exchange gifts and they played soccer and, you know, um, sung Christmas carols and traded food and cigarettes and, and things like that, which totally happened. I mean, in no way am I denying that this event did not occur. It definitely did, but um, now we sort of build it up and it's what we remember. When someone says Christmas in wartime, what is the one thing you think of? You think of the 1914 Christmas troops, right? So, sort of looking at that. Okay. I'm just curious, so do we build it up now, or did they play it down then? Because I guess at the time you would have wanted to keep the spirit here um, of, you know, fight the enemy and, and, you know, sell war bonds and things like that. So would it have been, I guess, the opposite um, at the time, and maybe we're not really playing it up as much now, is it? Well, I think that, for, yeah, you're right, there is sort of a sense that you don't want to be sort of spelling this sort of... Uh, pacifistic message in, in wartime. It's totally true. But, I, I mean, it was a sort of a sm relatively small event in the history of the war. And if you're looking at sort of like the, you know, Christmases that come later, like there's this sort of message of, you know, we're deep into the war now. There is not going to be another truce. Like this isn't going to happen again. And um, 
I think that there's a sense that now, anyways, we want to look back and find this moment of humanity uh, that was a big deal for the soldiers on the front, but I don't think it had that same sort of message for the people back home. And the only way that people back home would have really heard about it was through sort of maybe letters of the soldiers writing back and saying, oh, we, we had a truce with the Germans. And that might have seemed a little bit shocking and weird to people, but it really wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't the first time this has ever happened. Like, there's discussion of this happening sort of, like, in the, the Boer War of, like, the generals sending, like, um, you know, another something to the general of the other side. And, like, things like that. Like, it, it wasn't uncommon for sort of fighting to cease on Christmas Day. Um, but it's really played up now, I think, a little bit more than perhaps. How long would it have work? taken that message to, to get from the front lines to the home front? Um, letters? Yeah. Fairly quickly. I mean, letters were sort of um, regularly sent back and forth, but specifically, I'm, I think if you're going to talk about it, how could it, how fast could it have gone back, um, like telegrams from different news cables came in like very quickly. So like you can look at a paper on, um, let's say, like December 27th and see like it's cabling from like December 26th. Like it's a, something that was reported in like the London press on the 26th and made it back to the 27th. So it wasn't that big of a delay that you might think. Um, but even still, like when I was sort of looking at newspapers, like I would go up to, you know, 26th, 27th, 28th, like early January, and they're still not really talking about the truce in any sort of meaningful way. So now, was this truce something that happened all across the front lines during Christmas, or was it like kind of specific to one area? It's definitely on the Western Front, and it's fairly spread out. Um, it does happen along the lines, and in some places it lasts longer than others. Um, I think there's reports of it lasting up to sort of six weeks in some places. Um, but more likely that they weren't probably playing soccer and things like that for six weeks. It was more like sort of they just, you know, maybe aim their artillery guns like high, you know? Like they're just not really fighting for um, a duration of time. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty widespread. It definitely wasn't a, you know, very singular event. It did happen. Why do you think it didn't happen again in subsequent Christmases and, and I guess, even subsequent wars? Well, I think that there was a big push on sort of like the administration side to ensure that it didn't happen again. I know better sort of rations were sent over, um, more programs were sort of initiated like Christmas dinners and things like that to sort of prevent it. Um, and as well, I mean, I've read some articles that sort of say like once they were that deep in the war that it was sort of, I think it's like the, the Globe's front page of 1915 saying like war and hate fill the hearts of France, like in a direct sort of um, rebuttal of like peace and goodwill. So I think that there's sort of this sense that it's um, it's just like the war is far more violent than it had been, you know, only a couple months in. So you think that like steps were actually taken from higher up to prevent this from happening again? I think that it was, yeah, a combination of higher up sort of making sure that people weren't going to be disillusioned around Christmas or try and make them as happy as they could be to prevent that sort of fraternization. And I think also to at a certain point, like, the war does drag on and, and you do sort of take in that propaganda about the enemy, um, whereas early on it was still, like, I don't think that that message had quite sunk in just by, you know, from August to December. I just think that's such a human human story, and it's, uh, it's a little bit disheartening for me to hear that it wasn't such a big deal over here. So I guess what was going on here around Christmas at that time? So what was the war effort here in Canada around that same time. Yeah, so it's actually Christmas back home is very um, like a very patriotic and nation-centric sort of holiday. So it's not um, as peace and goodwill to all, um, as you might say. It becomes very sort of entrenched in 
our Canadian identity and our understanding of the war at the time. So, you know, gifts are being promoted as Canadian made and sort of like, um, for instance, people, which you might find very strange, like people enlisted on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, like that's the day they would go, um, which is sort of like the most patriotic act I think you can do is to sort of enlist in a war effort. Um, and they would do it on sort of the holiday of peace, which seems sort of counterintuitive, but it, it did happen. So do you think that that's because back here we, you know, people at home could afford that sense of nationalism, whereas people in the front lines are, who are like dying every day or seeing their friends die didn't really have the same kind of feeling? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a big disconnect between like the experience of war on the front lines and the experience of war on the home front. I think that there is a big difference between what, um, how you interpret the war and also I think how the war is sort of sold to you from sort of maybe the government to the press and, and things like that. So on the on the war front, you're experiencing it. You're, you're sort of getting your, your personal understanding of the war. But on the home front, I think that you're more inclined to take what you know about the war from these outside sources. You might get letters from people on the front and, and get that, but it's, it's all secondary. So I think you're able to have this more strong sense of nationalism versus the futility of war that I think people on the front might have experienced. Do you think that it all plays into how we've kind of bought hook, line, and sinker this narrative of this wonderful Christmas thing that happened, whereas it might not be as wonderful as we think. Yeah, well, I think, it, I mean, I think there's sort of like a couple things happening. I think it just demonstrates sort of like the power of, you know, uh, not the state, but like the power of the media to sort of influence our understanding of things and also to, um, you know, just to show that there is, there's mixed interpretations of the same event, you know? It doesn't affect all people in the same way. So World War I was a pretty brutal war. It was known almost from the get-go, as far as I understand, as the Great War. Um, and, and it was shocking to people, like, right away. It was, I, I think I'm the only person here who's not a history major. Um, but I think it was the first time, really, trench warfare was being used. Um, and it was really sort of devastating to see. So I, I've actually heard a lot of stories that many soldiers didn't actually aim at other mm -hmm. people. They were aiming above or, or intentionally mm -hmm. missing. Um, so how, how would this truce have related back to that? And do you think closer to the end of the war, the soldiers were becoming more jaded, I guess, and less uh, surprised and shocked by this whole experience? Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, like, I think that there's, like, a lot of things you can sort of read about in regards to trench warfare where there's, like, certain sort of signs or certain sort of, like, even, like, small little truces. So let's say, um, you know, like, a, a German sort of patrol group is, on, like, in no man's land at night and a British um, or French-Canadian sort of group is also there. They might see each other and, and they can choose to attack each other, but it's somewhat futile, right? So they can also <coughs> choose to sort of be like, I'm going to go now, <laughs> like, leave me alone. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, like, multiple instances of, we know that that was sort of, like, going on, so, you know, perhaps it might signal, like, don't shoot at mealtimes, and if I do, if I don't shoot you at mealtime, don't shoot me at mealtime. So I think that there's a lot of instances of that. Do I think that the soldiers were becoming more disillusioned toward the war? I think it depends on, like, where they were, who they were, and sort of um, the experiences and, and sort of the the messages they were being sent. So if they thought that they were, you know, this is the end, this is the final push, like I just got to get through this and we'll be done the war, I think that they're a lot more inclined to um, 
sort of push on, whereas I think that there's, you know, we definitely hear sort of mutinies and things at near the end of the First World War where I think that they're realizing sort of, like, I don't want to just, like, go into this battle again. Like, what's going to be gained? Like, another 10 feet? Like, this is not worth it. My time. My life. So I think that there's, it really just depends on the situation. It's like a very hard sort of four-year generalization to make. I don't know if I can make that. <laughs> um, this is just a personal question, just because um, I haven't heard anything about these kind of truces on the, you know, say like the Ottoman um, ally mm -hmm. lines as opposed to the Western Front, like you were saying. Is there any sources that indicate anything like that, or? Um, well, I have heard of some stuff later in the war regarding um, sort of Russians and Germans, like especially after the uh, the first revolution, that you know they were sort of just kind of hanging out, and I think it's like something like almost a million Russians sort of leave the war. So I think. Uh, you know, on that front, you can see it more towards the end when they're having a lot of instability with their government, that you see that. Um, but not, like, I mean, I don't quote me on this, but I don't think it was as widespread um, on that front in 1914. I think it was predominantly on the Western front. So how does this compare, then, to, I guess, Christmas in World War II? This might be a really early time to be yeah. asking this question. Um, but how... how did things change from uh, World War One to World War Two, and even to present day? Right. Well, I think one of the sort of intended plans for my project, and like honestly, uh, if you talk to me in four, four years, this could be very much untrue. Um, but I, I plan on sort of looking at sort of the the projection of the American Christmas and sort of the role that um, American corporations had, because I think the Second World War is the first war. Um, where you can see the mass sort of consolidation of mass consumer culture um, coming out of America. And, you know, Coca-Cola with Santa Claus and Rudolph the Ranger. Like, these are huge cultural symbols that have a, like, large part of our understanding of Christmas today. And they sort of initially, like, come out prior to, um, for Coca-Cola anyway, and Santa Claus, just before the war. So they're going into this war with, like, new cultural symbols that represent Christmas. And my plan is to sort of look at the, you know, sort of projection of American cultural power and this sort of selling of, of the American way of life for various reasons and uh, the role that um, so many Americans and, and Canadians and things like that played in um, being located in Britain and sort of on the Western front. Well, I guess I'm just curious on, on that kind of angle there. What um, changed between World War One and World War Two, that mm -hmm. makes it that much more predominant in World War Two. Well, I think it's really just sort of like uh, the sort of consumer nature of the society. Not that Christmas in World War One wasn't um, consumerist. Like the people did buy gifts and things like that. But I think you really see these sort of like large corporations emerging with like a global sort of projection of their image. I think that that's something that I plan on looking at. Um, Ultimately, I, I don't know yet. Uh, it's just sort of one of those things where this was this was the prelude to that project, and so now I have a bit of a, an understanding of, you know, Canada and World War One, and I'm hoping that that will help me when I start looking at World War Two. I can say, oh, here, this is clearly different, or something like that. Um, like for instance, uh, sort of the DIY movement comes out like a lot from Christmas in World War Two because of a lot of the shortages. And, and things like that. So people sort of made their own gifts and made do with things like that. And in that kind of even blossoms even more in the post-war period, which you might not think, but it becomes like a thing. It's a cool to make DIY gifts. So that'll be sort of one element um, how uh, this Christmas sort of 
was changed by World War II. Okay, so just getting back to the project, the current one, anyway. Yeah. Um, what are your personal thoughts just on the narrative that we currently have about Christmas and World War One? Do you think it's all right that people believe this narrative, or do you think it's important that we know the reality of it? Well, I think it's always important to know the reality of your history, but, I mean, for me, I think it really comes down to, like, you know, is this really a moment of um, humanity's triumph over violence? Is this really what it was? Because... To me, it, it wasn't, you know. Christmas on the home front is very patriotic. You know, people are enlisting on Christmas Day. Um, you know, they're constantly talking about people who, you know, are sitting at home on Christmas. Like, there's poems and, and letters and things like that. Like, why are you sitting at home on Christmas? Well, I'm in the trenches. Things like that. Um, so I think it's unfair to sort of see this as a moment of humanity's triumph over violence on some level because the war does resume. You know, people still, like, the war does go on for a very long time. So I think it's important to understand that this is this is a moment, and it's not the whole story. Mm. Do you think um, that because this happened, you know, the first actual year of the war, do you think that it um, it plays into the, the notion that a lot of people had that it wasn't going to be that long of a conflict? Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of goes down to the sort of old, like, oh, we'll be home by Christmas sort of mentality of the war, right? Um, and here they are, Christmas Day not home. They're in the trenches. Um, and it's really, I think it's really hard for you, you know, to sort of understand that you've signed yourself up for something that now you literally have no idea when you're going home. And, and reports coming out around Christmas um, during this time uh, in newspapers and stuff like that were starting to advertise that, you know, they thought the war would go on for at least another year and, and if not longer, depending on when Germany's allies might sort of like kind of fall. They were the one, like they were hoping that they would be the ones to kind of give up first, and, and then the war would end. That was sort of like the the vision in 1914 Christmas time was like, okay, maybe another year, just another year. But um, even that's like a long time to sort of like look forward to when you thought you'd be sitting at home with your parents, your loved ones. So I want to ask a question, kind of along those lines, and how we remember things. Um, when Robin was on the show, we talked about social memory. Um, mm -hmm. And, and this is basically what we're talking about right yeah. now. So how has our idea of this changed? And I don't know, we've kind of covered that, but let's reiterate that. Um, is that necessarily the worst thing in the world to have happen? Um, and, and how does social memory affect our idea of war as, in general as a whole? is ever like the worst thing that to happen but I think that there is sort of a value of you know historians it's sort of like our, our purpose in doing all this is to sort of look at you know this is what everyone thinks happens but here I mean it's sort of like the, the search for objectivity which I think every field tries to have and this is like history's way of doing it I don't know um, but I think it's sort of like I don't necessarily think that in, in sort of looking at social memory that you're necessarily saying that what people today view about it is inherently bad or somehow negative that because it's not wholly true. Um, I don't think that that's sort of the point of it. I guess it's more so to just say, here's what it was really like. And I think that there's no question that, you know, the truce as it happened on um, the battlefield, it did occur. Like, there's, you know, these are real things that did happen and then there was a truce but I think for me it was more so you know what were people back home thinking about it like were they concerned about it and I think that there's a strong desire to sort of push away from this uh, sort of pacifistic moment 
I, I, guess, I think I forgot the second part of your question. <laughs> uh, that's fine. Um, I, I did too. I got so wrapped up in what you were saying. <laughs> Good of me. Um, but I, I was, I'm wondering about this social memory thing because recently, and this is really silly, but I was watching an episode of Doctor Who, and basically he, you know, I, I think it was uh, Christopher Eccleston, and he reiterates basically the Battle of Britain. I get that every episode. And that's a really long time ago, and this is uh -huh. 2005. Right. And, and they're so patriotic still mm -hmm. about being this tiny little island nation that stood up against the giant and, you know, mm -hmm. and they really glorify the events that happened in World War II and how mm -hmm. they, you know, they were the lion and they were so good. Um, and I guess we do a lot of that as well. I, I think back to and the extent of my history education, which is like grade school and high school. Yeah. But, you know, we learn so much about wars and, and war, war heroes. You know, Billy Bishop, mm -hmm. you know, school's named after him. Um, and, and we do really glorify the things that, that happened, and we don't think so much about the fact that they were bloody, you know, right. really terrible battles where, where young boys were, you know, blowing each other to pieces. So... You know how how I guess has social memory played played a role in in that, and and causing even our education system to focus on the positive, nice, fluffy elements like Christmas truces, mm -hmm. and not think about so much the negative things that have happened. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the Christmas truce does sort of add this sort of element that you know it detracts from the horror of war on some level um, when you talk about this moment. Um, it sort of makes it seem like oh, the war could have been that bad. But it, you're right, it was. It was horrible. And um, I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's one of the sort of problems of not sort of looking at the big picture and sort of the reality of it all. Uh, and I think also, too, that there's sort of, people can sort of lay claim to this sort of moment um, and sort of turn it into something now that it was never then. So, for instance, um, I think it was, yeah, for the centenary, which was this past Christmas, like, uh, UEFA, like the football association in Europe, um, sort of put out this um, video, this four-minute sort of little mini-film talking about the Christmas truce and sort of the power of sport to, is similar to, you know, the truce and it's able to sort of overcome violence and sort of, you know, similar to how we look at the Olympics as this sort of powerful sort of like moment where we can all come together uh, as equals in sport. So similarly, they, that's how they portrayed the Christmas truce and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that message, but I think it does sort of detract from what the war was really like for um, not only the soldiers, but that wasn't what the people at the ho on the home front were really experiencing. Like, they didn't see this Christmas as a moment of, you know, humanity over violence. They saw this as a time to be patriotic and, like, support the troops and, and enlist and buy Canadian-made goods and, and all the nice patriotic things that we think about. So I, I just think that it it's a... Perhaps it's not, I don't know, shades our sort of perception in a way that perhaps needs to be clarified uh, the job of historians. <laughs> I want to just go back a little bit anyways, it's more of a personal question, mm -hmm. but when you, you think about high school history, and to a certain extent undergraduate history, it's a very broad thing. Yeah. And when you get into the level that you're at, it starts to narrow down, and obviously narrowing down onto Christmas. I'm interested into how you got there. Uh, it's actually very... Uh, really random sort of way. I My entire um, sort of 
undergraduate career, I always sort of was very into the Second World War, specifically sort of like Nazi Germany and like that sort of thing. And I, and I mean, I think that that's pretty common, to be completely honest. Uh, they always say if you can fit Nazi into the title of a, an undergrad course, like it's sold. You're good to go. You'll get your enrollments filled. But um, I think that for me, I sort of, you know, was always into that and I, and I enjoyed it a lot. And that's sort of why I continued on with my master's. And then I sort of got to my master's at uh, York and my supervisor was like, you know, you don't speak German, right? Like, you, you can't do German history. Uh, this isn't going to work for you. And I was sort of like, oh, okay. But I, I still really enjoy sort of like studying the war. I still really like these things. And um, my, my master's project was like totally unrelated. But when we were sort of with my supervisor at York and we were discussing this, we kind of honestly just sort of stumbled upon it, we're like, you know, it was Christmas time, I think we were actually talking about it, I was like, does anyone really, like, look at Christmas during the war? I don't know, I'll go look around, and it didn't really seem like there's that much literature on there. They seem to be sort of Christmas as a cultural history sort of moment, and then war, and they're very rarely related, although Christmas does happen during wartime, and I'll tell you all about it in four years. <laughs> <laughs> so, like you said, there's not a lot of literature on this topic as it is, so... Mm -hmm. Where do you think like the possibilities for this could go? Like where, where do you think you could take it? Not only the stream you're doing right now, but what are the other angles? Honestly, I feel like there's a lot of angles, and I think that that's one of the sort of struggles of my my dissertation is going to be is that I, I'm still sort of like struggling in my head how I'm going to organize this project, how I'm going to sort of tackle like do I look at how Christmas was experienced for soldiers? What about POWs? What about all these other elements? What about you know? Uh, injured soldiers, you know what I mean? Like, where do you draw the line? Or, okay, so no soldiers, let's just look at home fronts, you know? Oh, but do, are you talking about um, which home front? British, the British home front, Canadian home front, the Canadian American, wh which one has more weight? Where do you sort of draw the line on all these subjects? And so um, I'm still totally wrestling with that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think hopefully um, I'll come to some clarity. But it's true that the literature is pretty difficult and it's largely dominated I mean by like this sort of there was no truce in the second world war moving on so it's a mess essentially yeah it's a big mess well that's good I mean that's kind of what you want right unlimited possibilities alright well uh, thank you for coming on the show I really much. hope we get to hear from you again if not more than once in the next couple of years and see how this whole project is progressing Awesome. And this actually carries on after we turn the camera off at the bar, so. Perfect. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. But, uh, but yeah, okay, well, everybody, thanks so much for joining us once again on GradCast. I'm Eric Green. I'm Alex Mazinski. I'm Sam DeRoche. Have a good one. <laughs> That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at Gradcast Radio, and look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com, and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.